0: Hello everyone, happy 2021 to you all. I hope this finds you safe and sound, you and yours safe and sound, and that 2021 has already begun for you much better than 2020 ended. Uh, I'm starting off 2021 on the program, right, with having an amazing writer as the first guest for the year. I want you all to welcome a thriller and crime writer, uh, kiwi Bourne, Aussie dwelling, called J.P. Paul Murray. Uh, for you in the know, or for those not in the know, you will have seen his books, No Doubt Around, such as Call Me Evie and In the Clearing. Today we are going to be discussing his brand spanking new novel, *Tell Me Lies*. So I want you all to please give a big digital round of applause at your respective homesteads for thriller writer JP Palmare. JP, thank you so much for joining
1: the Right Way program today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm doing good. It's nice and sunny in
0: Melbourne. It looks very sunny in what I'm seeing. I'm recording this on Zoom and I can see a nice, light, airy room going on there.
1: Yeah, no, it's. it's, uh, I guess it's like early 20s, but very sunny, it's perfect, perfect weather.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Let's start off with an oldie but a goodie. Um, I wanted to know where was the inspiration for Tell Me Lies? Where did that stem from? Was it an idea, was it an image, was it a character? Where did it come
1: from? Um, Yeah, it's it's hard one, I've had this, question before. Um and it's, I still don't know the exact uh moment the story came to me or um you know there's no real clear inspiration. As opposed to my other books there really was a clear sort of moment. Um, I think with Tell Me Lies it was probably uh speaking at length with um friends who are psychologists who've helped me with research in the past. Um, and yeah, I, I guess lots of my stuff's born out of a pretty central question um, that I find fascinating. And I think so, um, I, I, and in The Clearing, it was obviously, you know, it was about, um, I was trying to answer questions that would forever remain unanswered about the family cult and fiction and just speculating really about what could have happened. And, um and tell me lies. The question I wanted to, I guess, answer was: At what point um, does the professional? How, how how far can you stretch a professional boundary with psychologists? And at what point um, is the um, well-being of the psychologist more important than um, you know ethical concerns about um, you know speaking out about Uh, certain information or or characteristics or, um, you know, possible crimes, you know, just just these sort of grey areas that psychologists have to wrangle. And I wanted to stretch that as much as I could. So, yeah, there's no real inspiration, but what I would say is lots of it was inspired by those conversations with psychologists.
0: I did notice that you thanked a couple of uh, psychologists in the acknowledgements, and I wanted to kind of ask you about that anyway, because I got the impression that... uh, uh, one, you did it, and two, you kind of had to do a lot of research for this particular book. It wasn't something that you could just um, bash out, I assume. I just got the impression that there was a lot of research that kind of went into it, and I wanted to know, yeah, how, how did you go about doing that? Was there a lot of research compiled and yeah.
1: kind all of- I mean, I feel almost uh, fraudulent using the term research because... Um, you know, lots of people, like if they write a historical fiction um, novel, and I say that because I'm looking at Jock Strong's book right beside me here, who does do a great deal of research, and goes to these locations he writes about and reads all these, you know, countless books to really capture a sense of time and place. Um, and to me, that's real research. But what I do is um, I, let, uh, I let my sort of nose for what interests me sort of direct, me if that makes sense so what I mean by that is um what I find interesting at the time I'll go and read a lot about or I'll go and talk to people about it and stuff like that as opposed to thinking I'm going to write this story I need to understand the full context it's more like I'm really interested in this and I'll read about and stuff and then I'll go hey maybe there's a story here um and so tell me lies was yeah just chatting with psychologists a lot Um, to get a sense of what their practice is like and to just, and and I'm just curious, you know, what, have you ever felt uh, in danger? You Mm. know, have you, have you ever had a really challenging, talk to me about challenging um, clients and patients you've had. Um, So that's what research looks like for me. And then the second part of that is fact checking. So that was when um, I spoke at length with um, Marion Barton, who who was one of the psychologists who's helped me with all my work actually, um, I spoke at length with her about professional boundaries, plausibility. I'd say something like, could this happen? Is this a thing? Um, and I'd, I'd sort of explain a scene to her and say, what would you do in this situation? Would any psychologist ever do that? Um, yeah, so so, so it just sort of becomes a case after the story was written, that's when I do the actual research of um, making sure there's no great plausibility issues. Um, and yeah, just, just, yeah, going through and making sure that it all kind of checks out, if that makes sense.
0: Interesting. So you, so you, you, you write it first and then you went about kind of posing the questions, uh, as they kind of molded around the story itself. Cause I went to a class a while ago and Sarah Bailey talked about how she did that rather than going and having this limitless potential to experts, she would mould the questions according to the narrative that she wanted to kind of tell and kind of like what you just touched on. It was like, is this possible? How did you feel about this within a personal scope?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think Sarah is a good good example of um, uh, getting away with it um, Mm. in the same way. I I think particularly in crime writing, you know, there's this assumption that we all have a detective's phone number on speed dial and, you know, but really... Often we might. I've got a friend who's a detective in New Zealand, but and he also happens to be a crime writer, and I don't um, actually contact him that much about story stuff. Um, I think for me, I definitely, I mean, Marion and and, um, Caitlin, who's also helped, so I'm much more likely to contact because I'm more interested in, as opposed to the investigation of these things, I'm much more interested in the psychological landscape of characters. But it is, yeah, you're right to say. It's for the most part, it's about plausibility fact-checking and making sure, um, you know, 95% of people are going to buy it because there's always going to be 5% irrespective of how you uh, write through how much research you've done. There's someone that knows more about the subject than you. And and so psychologists who read this, they're – Suspension of disbelief will be stretched a great deal more than people who aren't psychologists because you'd make assumptions as a reader that this is how things would would go and then psychologists might point, like the the implausibility might be the locations of the seats or how the questions are posed. There's a scene where Margot, the protagonist, asks sort of indirectly if someone's potentially considering self-harm, whereas psychologists have to ask that question directly directly. Uh, So, so there was the question I think Margot asked is, um, have you had, have you had any thoughts? Have you had any negative thoughts? Mm. Um, and then her follow up question was, do any of these negative thoughts have anything to do with um, hurting yourself? I think she, she asked. And, um, a psychologist has pointed out to me that the questions wouldn't go in that order. It would be, have you considered, have you been thinking about um, suicide? So it's just a very direct because there has to be, there has to be no ambiguity about that question. And so stuff like that, no one outside of the professional, um, you know, mental health services would see that, you know, and would identify that as, uh, you know, possibly an implausibility, whereas everyone else would let you get away with it. And that's my view of fact-checking and research is in service of the story we, um, we do make these concessions, uh, allowing that, um, you know, no one outside of these areas, areas of expertise are going to point it out. Um, and back to Jock, who I've spoken to about this before, his thing is, I think he said the 5% rule. He's like, you leave, um, you have to convince 95% of people that this could happen, that this is how it happens there's always going to be 5% that are going to be sceptical or going to know more about it or going to do the research while they're reading to just check these things and you hear from the 5% because they're the loudest about it, but you don't hear from the 95% who, you know, consider the entire thing completely plausible and didn't see any issues with it. So yeah, I I think it is a case of, for me, that's, that's my view of research and Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I get that, and you can't appease or please everyone, I guess, anyway, no matter what, creative, creative creativity aside, but when, when it comes into this professional capacity, I, I think that that's even inherently more difficult. So no, that, that makes perfect sense. I think 95, I'd be pr- probably pretty happy with that, that <laughs> amount myself. Um, I wanted to talk about, because because obviously Margot is the center of the the story, it's based around her. Um, this, this notion or this structure of a psychologist dealing with a potential um, obsessive, homicidally obsessive um, client is something that's been around for a while, but there's a few things that you've done, JP, I've, I've found that's kind of made it, uh, you've contemporized it and you've made it more your own story there. And I kind of wanted to touch on it because you've already somewhat mentioned it and I wanted to know if it was. The psychologists themselves, your friends that brought you to it, or if it was something that you already wanted to explore. But like Joe's st- um, job as a content moderator is something very, very new that didn't that didn't exist about ten years ago. Um, Evans online streaming um, is a source that obviously becomes a target as well. That's again something that you know, relatively ten or so years ago, is not something that you that you would find. So is that something that you intentionally? did because you subverted the tropes of the psychologist and the potentially deranged client, and you've brought in this really sort of contemporary issues or roles in which, you know, uh, a plague yeah. some aspects of society. So how did you go about blending that? Was that something that you thought about or was that just something that happened organically?
1: Um, yeah, so for me, I mean, the interesting thing is again, going back to what I said earlier, these, I was led here by my just interests, mm-hmm. um, I find it uh, fascinating that we expect um, people as as a form of work or um, you know as a as a job. It's no one would ever do this voluntarily, um, you know, unless out of necessity for survival and you know capitalism or whatever. But I th- I just find it um, really kind of hard to reconcile the fact that. Um, social media has become such a central part of our lives and everyone, everyone is on it. And it's, you, you, like, it's, it's, it's this thing where you can't really, you know, lots of jobs are contingent on engaging in mm-hmm. social media. Um, you know, you go to even like, to, it's, it's almost at the point where things we really take for granted the going out for dinner to a point now, it's almost like you have to, in some way, engage in social media. You can just go out for dinner. Like, someone's going to be taking photos of their food or you have to check in or... So, anyway, so, so like, this thing does exist, you know, social media, and it's become this thing that we can't really live without. And um, and so I'm just fascinated by how um, big tech in general um, is just this just sort of evil side of... Social media is content moderation. How this can't be automated. How people are, you know, are pretty happy to put on some completely horrible content, be it um, things they've written, images, videos. Obviously, you know, the Christchurch massacre is, is, is a very, you know, um, you know, probably well-known example mm. where that it Just it spread like wildfire, and so, so many people were having to view this material over and over to put food on the table, so they can survive. You know, it's not like it's not like Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg themselves were going through. And she, these are people who are so poorly paid and so poorly supported, and um, and I just, you know, the the evidence of exposure, and it's the same with abattoir workers to some extent, but the evidence of exposure to um, you know, extreme violence and trauma, um, what that does to the irreversible effects in the human brain is is so well documented um, that I just, yeah, it's just something I, I think we don't talk about enough. And, and so in reading about and reading people's experiences of working in, and the horrible kind of um, industrial relations, you know, like it's that these people should get so much more support. And so I thought if I sit in Australia where industrial relations are slightly better than the US, at least um, you know there there would be psychological support for people working in this industry. So I thought this this could be an opportunity for a really working class guy to be seeing a psychologist who would generally only see, um, well, and where it's set in South Yarra, where her practices would be in that pocket of South Yarra anyway would be almost monocultural, you know, very, certainly very um, affluent, uh, very, it's very sort of white, mm-hmm. white uh, you white. know, ca- Caucasian, um, whatever you want to put it. You know, it's, it's an area where she would be seeing a great deal of privilege and privileged issues where this would represent a real challenging, something that would be quite fascinating for someone like Margot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing you said about gaming and streaming, that's another you know, it's another contemporary issue that I I did want to address, you know, because this is, it's it's a popcorn fun thriller. It's, Mm. it's not a big, heavy, serious read, but I think that I view crime fiction in general as a vehicle for at least, um, bringing to a broader audience, the, these kind of, um, issues. And, and so gaming, um, is great. And people's attitudes about gaming has changed a lot. Um, It's a serious form of entertainment now, I think, in some ways, although it's much more addictive and so on and so forth. In some ways, it's seen as almost like music and and not quite art, but like, you know, television or whatever. It's just seen as something that people do in their homes. There's nothing wrong with it. And attitudes definitely have changed. But of course, you know, there's Gamergate, there's Mm misogyny, misogyny is rife still in games or the the language that are used in these games, you know, like I'm not a gamer. I don't have, I've got like a Switch and, you know, Switch and I played Zelda, uh, basically, it's the only game I've played on it. But um, I had one time, my brother's had a PlayStation at his house, I was playing Rocket League and I didn't really know how to play. You're just driving a car around, it's like soccer with cars, basically. Mm. And um, so just someone was like, oh, like, you know, Henry got me. I'm like a newbie. Obviously, I didn't know that, and it was like, "Kill yourself!" And I'm like, mm. "What? I'm like, what the? Can I swear? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, what the fuck are you saying? What? This is this, this, this is a- insane. You would never say that to a stranger. Like, what it's are like you doing? Funny. Um, and and like, that's not even the tip of the iceberg. You know, like, there's just some horrible, horrible stuff that strangers say to each other because they're comfortable with the fact that it's an avatar on a screen. Yeah. Um, and so that's another sort of form of trauma that I wanted to write about and address. And this idea of doxing, this idea of um, hmm. swatting, you know, where they, yeah, the... people find out where streamers live and call and cool. ring in like, yeah, yeah. And so someone's died, like so someone got shot in the States um, uh, because of swatting. The guy who swatted him, eventually they tracked him down and arrested him. But, you know, it shouldn't be, I guess it's, this is how the law works. Just mm. it's,
0: it's struggling to catch up to it in a lot of respects. It yeah, yeah.
1: So, so, so it is, um, yeah, so that, those two, you, you're right to say it's a classic setup of the psychologist and and the patient, but um, I did. I, I mean, it is important for me to write about what I'm interested in and things I see in the world that are, that that give me a really guttural re- reaction. You know, things I'm, I find deeply unsettling. And those, yeah, definitely our uh, relationship with social media and what that means to. Uh, often lost socioeconomic um, groups and how that the sort of classified is represented on social media. But of course, gaming as well, And as good as it can be for people making friends and stuff. It's also, there is a really kind of cancerous part of that that's, um, that we don't really talk about enough.
0: Absolutely. It's interesting that you, yeah, you, you classify it as a, a popcorn thriller and, and it is, and still you've managed to in a pretty pretty lean running time of a book you've still managed to include these sort of really pretty big disturbing, very contemporary, very poignant ideas and themes within it so interesting um with the i wanted to know uh let's let's progress on to family because family is something that you've you've uh, visited or focused on um in differing sort of major and minor um, capacities within your novels, but in, particularly including in the clearing. But I wanted to know what it is in particular that you wanted to address because we've talked about the contemporary themes, but this is a sort of perennial one. Like this is something that's always going to be around and always has been around in, in writing. But within you, within the scope of what you've written here, because much of what Margot does, if not all, is I mean, there might be some self preservation, but almost all of it is within um, doing so to try and protect her family. So, how much is it? That families will do to protect what they have or feel what is threatened? And how much is this the theme that maybe first originally drew you to writing this?
1: Yeah, so I mean, what I would say about Margot as a character, um, uh, I, it, since a young age, I've been kind of interested uh, in the idea of um, behaviour, viewing behaviour as. Uh, for lack of a better word, purely selfish, mm. um, and what I mean by that is it 's in service of our own emotions and feelings and thoughts that we do anything even uh, even the most altruistic act um, is, is, is you could you could sort of refine it to a, um, to, to sort of a selfish motivation, be it to make yourself feel good or whatever and so i 've always kind of been interested in that and part of Margot's character and and part of the mystery of Margot's character that's sort of revealed um you know later in the book uh is born out of her motivation and alternative ways of viewing her motivation for certain behaviour. Um, and so family um you know it's hard to talk about without talking about spoilers but
0: mm-hmm. um
1: you know I I'm challenging Often, in fact, it's only now that I realise in all three of my books so far, uh, and in fact, the next one that I'm working on, um, I'm, I'm, I'm frequently challenging uh, the idea of family and what we, what, how we, how family is. Um, I guess how what families can look like for starters, but also. Um, why we have this thing where we protect our families um, but not our friends to extent or to strange, you know, just just how far we would go to protect our families and why, why we won't do that for um, strangers and, or, or or even friends or people in our community. Um, and you're right to say in the clearing is it's a theory central theme it mm. is, what, what is a family and um, what we would do for different parts of our family and sort of making those two clash. But the same for Call Me Evie is it's all about family. It's all about what, how far you'd go to protect your family and so on and so forth. And Tell Me Lies, again, that I think the fact that it's so universal, I think when readers go, when they look at motivation for characters, they can really identify with protecting family as a, as a motivation. Um, but again, like I said, I do still in telling those, I wanted to almost reverse that to point out, um, that there is this, there is this kind of preservation of our own, um, self concept, I guess is the word. I don't know. Preservation of our own sort of views of ourself. Um, and, and, Margot sees herself as a family woman, although whether or not that's true, you know, she sort of sees herself as someone, um, as as a mother, as a suburban, consensual sort of mother. Um, and I want readers to wonder what, how much of her um, drive to protect her family is born out of protecting this concept she has about a complete family and, you know, fitting in and so on and so forth. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch there, but it, but it is it's only now that you point out that I realize how important family is and all through my book so far.
0: Yeah. And then with the flip side of that, and mind you, I'm I'm tread tread footing carefully here because I don't want to give spoilies, but the, this belief. So someone is willing within the character of Margo and more broadly within your work, uh, there's what someone is willing to do to preserve what they have within a family. And then you've got the motivations for, the kind of uh, evil villain figure within this work. And it's again, centralised around this notion of familial, what has been had, what has been taken away, what has been compromised, what has been tainted. And what that's done, what I feel you've done within, uh, certainly within this novel, is you made a, a villain that has believable, on some perverse level, beliefs or in terms of what's motivating them to do what they did. And I wondered again, because it all harkens back to family and what someone believes is their family, if that was something in which you had uh, contrived or strived to do, or if that's something that happened organically, because it's not just a serial killer figure lurking in the darkness, laughing about how evil they are, wanting to scalp people and stuff. It's more about um, much more harkening back to this, this notion of family and revenge based purely on that.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, So, I mean, there's, again, like, it's like it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel almost, but, you know, certainly famous narratives like Romeo and Juliet is there's this idea of two, you know, there's two families and how much commitment to those families and how much commitment to each other and and these sorts of grey areas I find quite fascinating. Um, But the motivation for, you know, for one of the bad bad guys, for lack of a better word, for the villain in the story, um, the villains maybe, um, but certainly, you know, our our central villain that is born out of, yeah, out of um, a a quite flawed notion of... um, Familial cause and effect almost so like how things would be different if this This person's family was one way um, And a lot of, and a lot of blame and, and a lot of sort of pent-up kind of you know all sorts of emotions um, And it's and you know like I think because like I have a big family um, And I think about this myself, you know, I think about moments in time uh, where my path and, and the personality I have and so on and so forth, you know, just my, who, who I am, how much of that was would be different if there were sort of moments in my family's history that were different. Um, and someone pointed out a long time ago that uh, often there's only one parent in my stories. Um, and... That may not be the case with Tell Me Lies, although we only talk about Mango's dad Hmm. really, and her mum did die. So, um, but yeah, and and in the clearing, um, there's only really one parent present, and in um, Call Me Evie, same thing. There's only one. And that's and I uh, lost my mum quite young, so I was ten when my mum passed away. But but you know, I've been obsessed with this alternative reality, this this parallel. Uh, life, what it would look like if that sort of hadn't happened. If my mum was still alive, who would I be and what would I look like? And and I think it's an easy, um, it's an easy, uh, it's easy to imagine uh, this utopian kind of life. You know, um, it's you know it's like the butterfly effect or whatever. But it's your personal history that will be changing. Um, and yeah, so so for in this and tell me lies, it was probably born out of that. This this idea that I've always kind of thought about and and, in the hardest moments of my life, I've thought, oh, things would have been so much better. You know, like it's just this weird thing. And that that can breed obsession, that can breed a kind of real, uh, you know, adversarial kind of um, approach to anyone you might deem responsible or in some way involved. It, you can, it can make you, it can really make you depressed or whatever. It can really make you kind of overanalyze, um, you know, your life and how you've existed. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just, um, I think it was born out of that. And I think, again, it's just this concept of family that's usually invisible in the writing process, but it's, it probably makes up so much my subconscious, um, some of the ideals that I still harbour about family um, that it just permeates the text and just finds its way into my stories.
0: Yeah look you're right I mean contemplating the great Water ifs is um, especially for for writer folk is it's lush uh, fertile ground for good stories but yeah I think that it's definitely kind of what you're saying it's potentially be a pretty um, pernicious rabbit hole if you allow yourself to fall down and yeah, don't, not stop at some point. It's natural, but yeah. Yeah, to, to continue to contemplate the great audience. Um, anyway, JP, let's, let's keep moving on. So I wanted to ask, because I'm also really interested as well, particularly of crime thriller writers, when uh, they opt to, rather than focus on going down the kind of tried and true method of having a central de- detective or a police officer, for the majority of the books choose not to do that, or it's it's, it's police officers might figure in I.E. sims with him and tell yeah. me lies, but the the character is, is definitely not a detective or a cop was is, um was is that something that you, you, you opted not to do or why, why this particular character
1: um, i'd say it's sub it's subconscious uh, at first anyway um, i don 't really um, Sorry, you can see my babies just floating by in the background. Uh, I don't really plan necessarily. It, it wasn't a conscious decision to be yep. like, oh, I'm not going to write from the point of view of a cop or a particular. I think at first I think I probably did think um, I don't I'll, – I'll stuff it up because, mm. you know, it seems like there's so much to being a cop that you'd need to research. Um, whether or not that's true, you know, I know lots of people write – uh, crime novels from perspectives of police officers and detectives, and so on and so forth, um, without any trouble at all, with very little research, um, and, and get away with it. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's my interest isn't in it's not in the investigation of a crime. Mm. I have zero interest in that. I barely listen to true crime podcasts or anything like that. I don't read true crime. I'll read a newspaper and look at crime, and my uh, interest lies in why this happened, not how do we solve it. It's 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 much more about the um, often the psychological landscape and the motivations uh, of um, you know uh, of the criminals, um, and it's and I like books where there's no police investigation. And you're not even sure if there's a crime, you know, like that, that, those are my favorite psychological thrillers. Um, although I did really love, you know, like I think Gone Girl is for me, I, I go back to a lot um, in interviews and infusing things. I talk about how important it was for me reading that book. Um, but I think part of that is because the focus is a, is a mystery, uh, but... You're more likely to get the answers from the characters than the police, um, and I think there's great power in that because as soon as you involve the police, it is very procedural, and mm. and these aren't bad books; they're just not books I read, and they're not books um, that I want to write. So I do, I, I think it's also just um, a focus on looking at why outwardly normal or good people also do really horrendous or horrible things. Um, what what happens when you kill someone or when you hurt someone or, you know, so these sorts of uh, broader moral questions as well, you know, what, what is, is there such thing as a morally permissible killing and so on and so forth. So there's there's sorts of things in there that I want to explore that are, uh, that are um, much more interesting to me than, you know, how did the police find the killer and, you know, all lots of sort of red herrings, investigative you know pursuits that leads nowhere. But then something else opens up, and this kind of um, you know, as I said, tried and true. You put put it right this tried and true method of accessing a narrative via a hard nosed detective. Um, but at the same time, as much as that's really appealing to lots of people, it's it's of very little interest to me.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean the the questions that are that are posed are pretty pretty broad and pretty deep. And yeah. Taylor's always time, some of those questions that you're talking about, are kind of harkening back almost to a lot to some of the Dostoevsky type questions that you get in crime punishment and stuff like that. Um, let's talk a little a bit generous. About... It's a generous comparison. <laughs> <but I> thank you.: <laughs> No worries. Um, look, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts, JP of your writing, yeah, because you're getting to what's fair to be said is old-handed in terms of being able to write quite quickly some pretty high quality books. And I wanted to know, first of all, in terms of the craft, if it's changed that much since you first started writing and two of your stories themselves change that much when you're writing them because I know that um, some writers have characters kind of take over or they, you know, they have to struggle to rest them back. But I know, I imagine, um, including with your, your sort of thriller writing, that if you change one piece or if something happens, then it's kind of like breaking a glass, like it kind of all changes and you have to go back to... Mm. Basics—is that something that you've had happen at the time, or not really?
1: Um, so just so put that to me into So you mean like uh, so what like you, instead yeah, of using a serial kind of character, structuring each n- n- novel—is that what you mean?
0: Yeah. Has I mean has the has your the way in which you've written has that changed all that much? And with the it's probably two questions I'm asking. And with the second part. Have the stories themselves, have you found that they've changed while you've been writing them?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, to answer the first part of the question, my my approach has changed in that I've accepted uh, where I sit in the market. Um, Right. So it's a really boring, dumb answer because people like the romantic answer of I write whatever I want. And to some extent that's true, but, um, I've conceded to a nice, cosy pocket where I where I come when and I know what I'm doing. Um, and with Evie, I think people will find, having read Tell Me Lies and going back to reading Call Me Evie, they'll see a pretty distinct uh, approach, um, mm. a, a, and they'll see you know very clear uh, stylistic choices that are that are similar. But narrative choices that are really quite different um, in terms of how tensions generated and what, what the story's trying to do, um, and so yeah, so as far as my approach, yeah, it's absolutely changed, in that I'm looking at stories that are um, that aren't quiet anymore I'm looking at louder stories, um, and the second part of your question, ha- how I write um, it's a good question because it ch- i'm I'm challenged in new ways by every project, Um, and, and so tell me lies is this rare magical story book. Cause it was written for audible, uh, for an audio format first. And so, oh, really? I, okay. I, yeah. So I let myself, uh, I let myself be completely unshackled in terms of the actual craft. The story came first in this. Um, and that's probably why it's a lot shorter. Um, so I, I, I let myself be entirely plot driven, um, and and that was really liberating. And so this it just happened like in in a matter of months. It was it was essentially where it ended up. There was there was a bit to iron out in the the edits, and all said it probably took six months, maybe total. Whereas in the clearing and me took a great deal longer. And in the clearing was also a book that came out really quickly and easily but then the edits the, so laborious because um, it's much more structurally ambitious and much more, uh, plot-wise, much more um, complex and there's so many more moving parts. And it's that thing, right, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, you change the structure and the glass breaks or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more for me, it's like you um, you've got, like, all these cables kind of, you know, jumbled up um, and, and tangled. And you it's, if you've ever tried to, you just try to gently pull one out and it tightens around everything else. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, so I have to go back through very carefully and intricately, almost like a surge and just sort of pulling it through. And, and then, so it's sort of like that for me, um, the editorial processes, it's possible to remove threads and characters and scenes and stuff, um, but you just have to be careful about and it's very slow so with tell me lies it wasn't like that at all it's just this kind of almost perfectly linear narrative with a very small cast of characters very clear sense of cause and effect and consequences and um so it was so it was really easy but i think the best example of how i write is the one i'm working on at the moment which is called The Last Guess. Uh, and you probably found at the back of this book there's it's sample chapters of that. Um, and this one's been the one that's been an absolute beast to try and wrangle. And, and when you talk about writing quickly, this is... I've been working on this for basically probably three years now. Okay. Um, the Last Guess. Where Tell Me Lies was, as I said, probably six months. Um, and, and every book is different, but the concept was... Oh, I was so in love with this concept and I, and, I, and I saw it had so much potential that every that no plot no draft was good enough Right. Uh, okay. and so I kept changing and chopping and so one edit I literally cut probably 90% of it you know it was a complete draft and I've been reworking this draft yep. for six months nine months whatever and Stop. then I cut it all, cut yep. it all, basically. Yeah, but, but uh, went back to square one and sort of rewrote it. And so it's almost like I've written three or four books because the st- stories have been completely different, but the central concept of installing cameras and in airbnb's have been the same. The characters have all changed. Everything's changed. The settings change. Um, and so that's how I, uh, that's how I write. Is I think the concept at the moment. It's the sort of concept. Uh, and and the, the potential of the story, and in service of that, I'll just spend as much time as I need to, to find or to sort of carve out the best story.
0: Well, that was um, you kind of dovetailed into my second last question. I feel you kind of already answered it, which was what's the biggest challenge or obstacle that you've faced thus far in your writing career in order to keep doing so? And it sounds like pretty much what you're working on now
1: yeah but I'd also say like honestly, having a baby has been a it's been a real shock to the system i think I've set this relentless pace of a book a year and it's not a serial character, and that's a real mm. challenge because you're inventing everything again um and I think there's real potential in that because you're finding new stories and you've got a bit more freedom um at, but at the same time, I'm envious of uh you know for any number of reasons but I'm envious in particular of um someone like Ian Rankin because he's so reliable, so reliable, and so finding so many unique stories for the same characters my problem with that is it's fundamentally implausible that one character can have s- such a life where they encounter so much drama and you know what I mean so I don't know and him. that's but then every reader that reads those books doesn't see that. So no. then that's perfectly fine. And But for me as a writer, I would find that a real challenge. Um, and I like to push myself to find pretty unique. And I, and I get sick of the same characters. I write them to kind of get them out of my head, you know, to kind of exercise them. So, um, yeah, I think the challenge for me is um, as a writer is – Allowing myself freedom to pursue other interests that will inform my work, without feeling that kind of pressure to continue to produce and to write and to write for hours every day, and I'm t- and I'm working on it this year. It's I don't believe in resolutions or anything, but you know, even this year I'm doing a course in classical music online just because that's I think that's it's so important to let yourself. You things that interest you and that's going to come through in your work and that, that yeah. there's new experiences and so um, i've been like swimming and going for walks again and, and we've moved to a new suburb and so all these things i think really help um to sort of energize you creatively you know like it's 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 you can't just sit there and write and invent all day it's also reading. I'm trying to read more again. But it is this kind of, uh, uh, the most challenging thing is overcoming the guilt of um, being stationary creatively. You know, being, being falling into this kind of habit of not moving forward or feeling like I'm not making progress because the words aren't going down. And, I, and I, I'm just trying to change my mindset so I see uh, everything that's kind of, All the negative space around the work as part of the creative process, and and I guess that's the challenge is coming to accept that and not be so addicted or or so overly committed to the actual physical act of tapping the keys.
0: Hmm. Well, it sounds like you're doing the the best thing to ensure that uh, kind of keep those sort of thoughts, and they're pretty natural to any writer, I imagine. Uh, keeping them at bay and I feel like that's everything that you're doing like the the classical music the the walking the swimming all that sort of thing will will breed no doubt or prove to be again fertile ground for some book way down the track down yonder um, you know it's it's
1: like it's an act of preservation creative preservation as well like I I did have really bad burnout and I have had burnout before and i found common themes and characters and stuff emerging over and over again. And I think, and I think that's just born out of not even giving myself time between projects, Mm. you know, that's just jumping so quick to the next thing. And between edits, I'm writing something else. I'm always writing. um, And it's not a break to stop writing Mm. because you're still working, you know, you're still working through things in your head. So I was just, yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. Um, and, and so much of that is just born out of the fact that I'm, you know, I have set this pace of writing lots of books quickly. And that's my publisher who is really understanding and I, I appreciate, wouldn't mind me having time off, um, has come to expect this. And so I've put this pressure on myself um, and it's just undoing that a little bit. Yeah. But it sounds like you are
0: doing that by doing stuff outside of, like you said, punching keys on the, the keyboard mm. there. Um, JP, last question is, again, it's an oldie but a goodie. I like to start off an oldie but a goodie and end with an oldie but a goodie. What advice would you give to authors, be they aspiring, established? What advice would you give to any listener that is an author?
1: Um, Well, I'll assume, uh, you know, it's hard hard to avoid, um, you know, platitudes and generic advice Mm. uh, because, because... For everyone, there's only so much advice. You know, like if if you're polishing a draft, I might tell you to, you know, take a break and come back with fresh eyes. And if you're starting out, I might say, show, don't tell, whatever. So it's really hard to get advice that's universal but not too generic. Um, But what I'd say is one thing that has worked for me uh, and continues to work for me, and it's just a, um, it's a pretty, probably a pretty common thing that lots of writers do, um, but, you know, everyone has. Reading can be hard to begin with. You know, lots of people aren't readers but want to be writers. So, you, first you have to just read, obviously. But if you are loving a book or if you're finding something, something speaking to you about the way this person writes, um, it's so important to be conscious of what it is that's so great about it and to make a record of it, even on your phone notebook whatever and through time over the years you'll one when as soon as you make a record of it you've kind of committed in a sense um to the idea that this is what makes this writing good and so you might recognize it more in your own work which is great but also if you make enough of these kind of notes and you you build up this kind of big collection of things that you find inspiring um and so it could even be character it could be a mannerism it could be a way they've described someone's earlobe it could be uh, a sound it could be on a of you've never sort of experienced it could be you know any number of things and so you make this big list I and mean, you've got you end up with dozens of notebooks possibly or a big big list on your phone and what's going to happen is you're going to have um writer's block Um, you can't see me for listeners but i'm doing inverted commas commas. yeah yeah (laughs) yeah uh you're going to have writer's block or you're going to have periods of self-doubt or you're going to find you can't move past something in your story and the best thing you can do is grab that list of things and go through and you just sort of feel energised and it reminds you of what good writing looks like because obviously writing is a real confidence game. Mm. And it reminds you of what's poetic or what's beautiful, what a great description, what, you know, it, it, it sort of shows you, um, it's like your true north, you know, you kind of get a real sense of um, why you're doing it and what you're trying to produce. And you also find descriptions, you're not stealing them, but you find there might be a parallel, you know, like a, like a colour. Uh, you know, how they've described the color might work and and the context you're writing. And and so you find little even words, single words in there that you wouldn't normally use that really work and and how you're trying to describe something. So yeah, I think it's just incredibly practical um, and so important. It's the first thing you should do when you decide you want to be a writer. The very first thing you should do is to start collecting these things. That's fucking great advice. That's not a platitude. That's
0: far from it. That was fucking (laughs) awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what, when I try to avoid platitudes, I go to what I wish someone told me when I started out because everyone told me the platitudes like I heard and read every writing book at first. And mm. it, there's so much common advice, but I feel like that that was one thing I wish I knew immediately um, that took me years to kind of build that habit of collecting, collecting these things.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Um, JP, look, thank you so much for coming on the program, man. It was an absolute delight talking to you. I've listened to your podcast. You're an excellent podcaster. And it was oh, an absolute pleasure to have you on the flip side and uh, talk about your, your book and your, your writing there. So thank you so much for being on the program.
1: No, thanks for having me. And it was, um, it was great. You're doing a good job. It was a fantastic you, interview.
0: Thank you. So everyone, that was J.P. Pomari talking about his new novel, Tell Me Lies, which is now available for sale uh, from all good booksellers nationwide and beyond, wherever you're listening to this from. I'm not going to assume that you're just in Australia. Uh, please be sure to continue listening throughout the year. I've got a lot more guests coming up that I'm excited to share with you. And please do feel free to listen to the old episodes. They're available right there. Click on the button on Spotify. Uh, Thank you again. Happy 2021. Here's hoping it's going to be a hell of a lot better than that unspeakable 2020. Thank you.